And if you would take out your copies of God's Word, as we turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are taking just one more week break uh, from our normal study through the Gospel of Luke, uh, because we have officer nominations and elections coming up. And one of the things, if we're going to embark on such a task, we need to know what God requires of those leaders. So we're going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Listen carefully, because this is God's word to you. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's once more go before our God and ask his blessing on our text today. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would help us to see your truth in this passage. Help us to understand it well and help us to apply it to our own lives as we seek to appoint the men that you would have chosen for our church. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. It seems to be these days that we are always in the midst of an election cycle. We rightly see elections of our leaders in the country to be important and not to be taken for granted. After all, it is a right that is not guaranteed by each country to its citizens. And it's a right that had to be defended at great cost and should be counted as an enormous privilege and responsibility to help shape the country that we live in. Now, as true as all of that is, we are on the verge of something far more important because it has impact for eternity. Today, we are beginning the nominations process for the leaders of our church. Far more is at stake than tax policy. Far more is at stake than just Knollwood's reputation in the community. Indeed, the reputation of the gospel in our community 
and our own spiritual formation is impacted by the decisions that we will make by the power of the Holy Spirit in the coming weeks. Thankfully, God has not left us to formulate the ideal candidate on our own. God has graciously given us a profile of a church leader in this passage that transcends time, transcends culture, and our own individual ideals. You will notice that the list that God leaves us here looks quite different than a job description or a help wanted ad that we would see today. Unfortunately, it looks even differently than some job postings for churches. There is no mention in this list of a dynamic personality or success in business or even previous leadership experience except the candidate's own household. This list recognizes character, not class. It recognizes and requires integrity, not innovation. It prizes prizes a grasp and application of truth rather than a knowledge and appropriation of trend. We've seen the danger of ignoring this list in the past that requires us to promote and then unfortunately have to protect men who did not have the qualities that we're about to see here today. So with all this in mind, let's turn to our points that we look at today. You can find my outline in the bulletin for you if we have our two points. The first is that Christ wants character in his elders. Christ wants character in his elders. And then number two, Christ wants character in his deacons. You can see the driving point we're trying to emphasize here today. So first, God requires, wants character in his elders. This book is a letter that is written to a young pastor named Timothy. This is in the church that he is pastoring, and Paul is not able to come to him immediately, so he sends him this letter so that they might know how one ought to behave in the church. And here we get to chapter 3, where he is talking about what would be the requirements of a church leader. And he starts out here in the first verse saying, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. This is a great and necessary way for Paul to begin this passage because the responsibilities that he calls this man to are enormous. There is a weight of spiritual shepherding, a leading of God's people that is going to sometimes require difficult decision making. That is going to require, unfortunately, even conflict. And one must be prepared for that sort of leadership. But we don't want to scare people away from this position either. Because while there is great cost and there is great responsibility with this position, there's also great reward. That it is a noble task to aspire to. And it is a wonderful work to be called to. Now, depending on which version of the Bible that you are reading, uh, you may see a different word here uh, in this first verse. It says, if anyone aspires to the office of of an overseer, as it's translated here in the ESV. Uh, And if you have, I think it's the King James Version, uh, I believe it might translate it bishop. I think the NASB also does that. Uh, If you're confused about that, uh, he is, the word that Paul is using here is the word, is the word episkopos. And he uses it interchangeably with elder. The requirements for this same position are enumerated again in the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. 
So that's chapter 1 and verse 5, when, he's, when Paul's writing to another young pastor and forming another church. And it says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If any is above approach, the husband of one wife, the children are believers, not open to the charge. You can see all of these same requirements are put forth under elder. So Paul uses these two terms, episkopos and elder, which would be um, uh, pres, presbyteros, which is where we get the term Presbyterian from, uses those two things interchangeably. He'll even do this even in the same book. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and 17, he refers to elders who are ruling. So this is what he is talking about, and this is where we get the term here today for elder. Now, I still like that this has been translated overseer because this gives an idea as to what the elder is supposed to do. That he is overseeing the daily duties of the church. That he is, have, has an administrative role and also a spiritual well, role as well. To administrate the businesses of the church, but to also administrate the souls as well. To be keeping a close watch over the people that God has given them charge and responsibility. Now, because this is a noble task, because it is an oversight of God's people, it begins, verse 2, therefore, this is what the man is supposed to look like. Now, the list that follows seems somewhat randomly placed. It's hard to find an organization scheme to it. But one commentator that I wrote came up, or or that I wrote, that I read, uh, not quite there yet, But he has framed it as looking at two different characteristics. One is the personal characteristics of the person and then how that works interpersonally. So you've got the personality characteristics of someone and then how that interacts with other people. And we're going to see this go back and forth as we go through this passage. So here is the first. This overseer must be above reproach. When he mentions this, it means that this person's character is supposed to be above scandal. Now, we we always want to remember when we are evaluating a man's history that the gospel has a tremendous power to transform. And we always want to make sure that we, when we judge a man's character, if there is something in his past, we do want to ask if this is before or after conversion. Now, wisdom is going to need to be applied in every case of someone that is brought to it. But that must be kept in mind that the gospel can transform some really awful people. Myself stands as an example that they can be redeemed. But also wisdom does need to be applied carefully and that we want to make sure that the position that we put this person in is not going to endanger their own soul as well or the souls of the others. Now. When we take a look at what does above reproach look like, we're going to see this spelled out as we continue. So let's move on to the next one. It says, the husband of one wife. Now, this has been debated because the phrasing here is strange to our ears. If we were to translate this phrase literally, it would say a one-woman man. So what is Paul doing here? Is he restricting the office away from polygamists? And is that, is that the extent of the requirement, or is there more? Well, it is unlikely that he is just restricting this to a quantitative problem, <laughs> but a qualitative issue. How well does he treat his wife? Because we see, actually, if you would turn with me just one page over, into 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, 
we see the same phrase used in another direction. And he's talking about widows. Verse 9 says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. And the phrase underneath that is the same sort of phrase we see. Instead of the husband of one wife, this is the wife of one husband. So polyandry was not practiced in that culture. In fact, there's only two cultures in the world that practice uh, one woman marrying multiple men. So if the same phrase is being used to talk about being, um, is, is being used in this context and in the other, I think what Paul is doing here is he is saying that we are faithful to our one wife. That we, it's not, one, one can have one wife and be unfaithful to her, and that would break this requirement. But that one is to be dedicated to her. So, of course, we can also ask, well, what about those that are single or divorced? Does this mean that they don't qualify? Do you have to be married in order to be an elder? No, that's not the case. We don't have time to turn to it here, but if you wanted to look at 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is single, and that certainly didn't keep him from serving in the church. In fact, he wished that everybody in the church could, could be single, so this way more could be accomplished for more that could be accomplished for the Lord. So surely he wouldn't wish that everyone would be single if there if everyone had to be married in order to be a church leader. Then as far as divorces, in that same passage it addresses those for those that have been married before. Again, it depends before or after conversion, and it depends on whether or not they were the innocent party in the divorce. Assuming that, that they, were, then, uh, that they were the innocent party, they would still qualify in this task. So the husband of one wife. Now the next few qualities are rather self-explanatory. So we won't spend as much time with each one. But we can see when we look at sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable, and hospitable, one does not want a leader that does not know how to be serious. Or to be a leader who is impulsive. And lets his feelings and passions guide him. The Bible requires that leader to be hospitable. Who's willing to open his home for others for their service. And he can't be an abrasive man. That's given to violence and rushes to make conflict. He is going to be pushed and challenged in this position. He may have people argue with him over the decisions that he makes. So he must be able to handle that with grace and gentleness. Now we look to the next one. We will, we will cover the able to teach quality in just a moment. I'm going to continue on here into verse 3. And he says that he is not a drunkard, not a violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but not a lover of money. This elder, this person that God has called to oversee the church is to be free of an addiction to alcohol and an addiction to money. The former seems obvious, but the latter requires some thinking. I read one commentator that had said something to the effect of, if we find a man that is addicted to alcohol, we throw him out. But if we find a man who is addicted to money, we make him deacon. (laughs) And it's very easy for us to do that because we value money in America so much. This is how the economy moves. It's how life is done. It's how our institutions are built. And we can tend to look at someone who has money or who thinks about money often and who, has, who is good with it, that they, are, that they are naturally gifted leaders that should be here in the church. That may well be that they can be good with money and be good leaders. And they may be wealthy or they may be poor, but those are not the considerations that Christ calls us to evaluate. 
The evaluation depends on what do they do with money? How do they feel about it? Do they put their trust in it? Because as we have seen, unfortunately, many examples of men who were moved by money more than God, and that always leads to disaster. If you have a man who is addicted to money, then that means you can buy him. And that's not what we need in the church. That's not our sole indicator of success or competence. So what is? Indeed, the real test for an elder is how does he lead his own home? Does he manage it well spiritually, physically, and financially? Remembering what we've already said about that. Because if he can't do this in his own home, then why we think that he could do that for the church, Paul reasons. Indeed, we shouldn't want to pile on additional responsibility onto a man who's not able to deal with his first responsibility, which is his home. It's been well said that the, a man's home is the first church, his first seminary, and his first priority. He has been given these children, he has been given a wife in order that he might lead them spiritually to Jesus. And if he is having a hard time grappling with that, then we don't need to saddle him with additional responsibility. But instead, help him to be able to manage his own home. And when he's able to do that, then perhaps he might be ready for service to the church. Now, what are we to do when it says here in verse 4? to keeping his children submissive. You might think to yourselves, like, well, I did my best to raise my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And as long as they were under my roof, they were submissive, but when they became adults, they left. And I don't know where they stand with God. In fact, I'm afraid that they're not. Well, the word that Paul is using here, while the word for children can be applied to adults, The fact that this is children that are submissive implies that they are young and still under his roof. We remember that salvation is of the Lord. That as much as we would like to be able to just reach into our children's hearts and change them, we can't. We have to trust the Lord for that. And as long as a man has been faithful to bring the gospel to his children, once they become adults, that is their responsibility. So a man who has a wayward adult child is not barred from this service, does not disqualify him from a position here in the church. Next, here in verse 6, he says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. A man who is exalted high and fast very often leads to pride, and pride will lead to a fall. Unfortunately, we have seen this happen as well to many young upstart pastors who seem to have a talent for speaking, so we exalted them quickly to try to get as much advantage out of them as possible. We can avoid this by remembering that God is sovereign. And that individually, God is still able to carry on whether this one individual is present or not. The Lord is able to work through and guide the people here at Knollwood whether I am here today or not. That doesn't mean that we throw up our hands and say, well, then there's no responsibility for me. 
He's like, no, we want to embrace the, to, to be a part of this kingdom. I'm thrilled to be able to be here and serve the Lord in this way. And, for, and I will do so for as long as he will allow me. But he doesn't need me. He doesn't require that I be here. Nor does he require any man. So we don't have to rush to put him up. We don't have to rush to use him as the savior of our church and to say, it's like, well, he's a dynamic speaker, so he'll be able to bring people in. He'll grow the church. He'll do all those things. So we got to do it now. No. Later on in 1 Timothy, it says, be, do not be hasty to lay hands on someone. And this is part of the reason. Exalting someone high and quickly can result in pride and can fall under the same condemnation that the devil has fallen under. It was pride that exalted the devil. At the time, he was known as Lucifer, and he fell, and great was his fall. Finally, he must be thought well of by outsiders. It means that he has a good reputation in the community outside of the church. Now, this doesn't mean that he has compromised core tenets of the faith in order to be popular with everyone outside. That's not what we are talking about. But the one who is the faithful Christian who has been engaging in his community and, and has his private life look the same as his public life, even those outside the church who are very good at spotting hypocrisy and calling that out, if even those outside the church are able to look at this man and say he is who he says he is, he's the same in public as he is in private, and that is a wonderful commendation. Because if he does not, if he's not well thought of, we are wanting him to keep out of that, keep out of this disgrace so that he does not fall into the snare of the devil. If everyone from the outside is saying, no, we know who this guy really is. We know what he's like. To put him into a position of leadership is going to result in a snare and is going to result in danger both for the man and for the church that he serves. Now, in these qualities that we are see listed here, we see protection against the three most common temptations in ministry. And they are glory, they are money, and it's sex. Those three things, if you're going to find a pastor that has fallen, it's one of those three things, usually the first leading to the second leading to the third. Each of these qualities, if we find them in this person, it's because they've been put there by God. It's because the Holy Spirit is working in his heart. And he is going to need that to keep him from sin. We need a man who has been transformed by God. And we'll see that in those qualities. Now, while the responsibility to rule, to exercise oversight, differentiates the elder from the deacon... Uh, there is only one ability that the elder is called to do that differentiates him from deacon as well, and that is to teach. I'm going to go back here to verse 3. The elder candidate must be able to have a firm grasp of biblical truth that he can communicate when called on. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that he has to have taught a Sunday school series or been to seminary or hold a Bible college degree or anything like that. But what this does mean is that if we were to ask him to fill in for a Sunday school, would he be able to study and present this material accurately and correctly and competently? Can he do that? 
Now you say, well, I haven't seen him in that role before, and I've, I've not seen him teach a Sunday school. Right, well, I'm, I'm of the opinion that if they can teach in other subjects, that they're able to teach the Bible as well. I think it's, while there would be people that would disagree with me, I, I think it's overly restrictive to say a person has to have taught Sunday school or to be able to have seen that before they are qualified for the eldership position. I think that if we can see them communicate either the gospel truth or communicate other things clearly with other people so that they can understand that that would be a sufficient calling for teaching. So we're not able to, not unfortunately able to base that out of any text because all we have is able to teach. (laughs) That's it. But um, I think while the ideal is that we have seen him teach in a Bible context, I still think that someone who is able to teach well and is able to grasp doctrine well would fill this role. Now, we move on here to deacons, and I've spent a lot of time with the elder requirements uh, because there's a lot here, but they're mostly the same as the deacon. So we'll go through these a little bit more quickly. But again, the common theme persists as we move into our second point that Christ wants character in his deacons, that God desires and requires character above all else here in the diaconal role. Again, likewise, it says in verse 8, they must be dignified and sincere, means that they're not saying one thing with one person and the opposite with another, being double-tongued or double-worded, as it says there. They, too, cannot be in love with money or wine, yet they must be in love and faithfully devoted to his wife and to the rest of his household. For, again, if he cannot serve well in his home, then he cannot serve well in the church, because that's what's exactly what's required of him in this role. Indeed, just like the word episkopos, or overseer, we have the word deacon means service. That's what this person is to do. We can actually see the first deacons elected in Acts chapter 6. Here, when the gospel has been spreading and people have been gathering together, here in verse 1 of Acts chapter 6, it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And it continues. That man, Stephen, if we're thinking that the call to deacon is somehow lesser or requires less of a man than what we see in the qualifications for elder, we can see what Stephen did when confronted. When he was asked for the hope that lies within him, he was able to preach to a hostile audience and gave his life for the gospel. That's the call of the deacon, too. We also want to make note as we're looking at this, that this is not a two-tiered office where one is more important than the other. It's not the case. When Jesus went from village to village and town to town, he was able to do both. He was able to preach and teach and oversee his disciples, as well as multiply fish and bread to be able to feed 5,000 people. 
We, unfortunately, do not have that ability. No one man does, or even a plurality of men in one office can. But Jesus, while he is still spiritually present with us, is not physically present. So we're his arms and his feet and his hands, and both need to be done. We need to have men who can teach and proclaim God's word, and we need to have men who will serve in people's needs. They are sharing the gospel too, because they're showing the gospel in their deeds as well as their words. And if we turn back here into 1 Timothy, when we look here in verse 13, we have a commendation for those who serve as well. It says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This will be because when we look in verse 9, it says that they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. They have to understand the gospel and have to live by that as well. That they are not saying one thing of this is how it's supposed to be, but living in a completely different fashion. It's a high calling for a deacon. But for those that do and those who serve well, gain a good standing for themselves in the community of faith and have a great confidence that the Lord has been working in them. That's a wonderful assurance to have. Now, while they're not called to teach, they have to understand the gospel, have to understand the faith because they may be called, as Stephen was, uh, to communicate that gospel. But this is the duty of the deacon of one of service. But now we return to verse 11. I haven't addressed this one yet because there's one final controversy we need to look at. One more thing that isn't, that is discussed. Depending on which translation of the Bible you have, once again, in the ESV, it translates verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified. In the New American Standard, you may find, if you're in there, you may see it translated woman. Now, this has leads, a, leads us to a couple of interesting questions, isn't it? Are we saying that, if, depending on how this is translated, would say, okay, is, does this mean that women are up for the office of deacon? What are we supposed to do? Well, if we were to try to look behind the English text and say, like, well, let's take a look at the Greek, it's not going to help you. This is the, there is one word that can be translated woman or wife. The only way you know which is which is by context. And in our context here, it's a little harder to know. So how are we supposed to translate this? Well, if we were to look at other passages of Scripture, as some do, we were to take a look, for example, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, they may say, okay, well, here is a, a woman. Her name is Phoebe. Paul commends her in the letter to the Romans. And says that this is Phoebe, who is a servant of the church. The word underneath servant is deacon. So now the question is, what do we do? What does that mean? Well, deacon is also a very flexible word. Deacon simply means servant. In fact, Christ referred to himself as a deacon, as one who is serving his people when he was washing the feet of the disciples. So, so we are unable to, out of Romans chapter 16, I think build the case for a female diaconate based on one word ambiguously used in Romans chapter 16. So that leaves us here in 1 Timothy. I would think it also odd that if he was going to say that women are going to be a part of the diaconate, that he would squeeze them in in the middle of talking about the male diaconate. He's been talking about this from verse 8 through verse 10, and then goes right back to that without transition back into verse 
12. So I think the best way that we can translate this is their wives. It means that a deacon has, that when we are considering a deacon, we also consider his wife. And I think that might be is because this is a service role and that she may well be helping in this role. He is called to serve all people in the congregation. And it might be that his wife will often be helping him with that. So there are qualifications for her as well that she needs to be dignified and not a slanderer, but is sober-minded, serious, and is faithful in all things. Now, it is controversial in our culture to say that, that the office of elder and deacon is a male-restricted role. But what I want us to remember when we look at this, that, and this is good for us to just keep in mind in general when we look at church leaders, it's not the, the elders and the deacons and the pastors that are doing the real work of ministry. In fact, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, this was actually a concept that I think I, I preached here when uh, it was either my first sermon or one of my candidating sermons, I think. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. When we look to this role, our role as elder and deacon is to equip you. Because the work of the ministry is going to be accomplished in your social circles, male or female. There is something great for you to do because we are building the kingdom of God. Yes, it's true that Paul calls women to not have authority in the church or to teach in the church context. That doesn't mean that they can't start a podcast or write books. Or minister to other women and children. There is still so much that can be used. I think that, the, that while, while they shouldn't be ordained into the pastorate. I think there is a place for women at the seminary. I think that, that it would be a wonderful thing to have women that are trained. To be able to teach the Bible accurately and deeply. This is a wonderful thing that they can do. And this is a wonderful thing that we should encourage. But at the same time we need to be faithful to what God has commanded us to do. That, we, that the offices that we fill are to be filled with men. And I believe that this is just further evidence of God's ability to work through weakness. We also remember that when we think about our judgment day, when we think about when God doles out the rewards for those in faithful service. I think we're going to be very surprised at those that have more rewards than others. I think there will be a lot of pastors that will be very surprised at how few rewards that there will be for them. And I think there will be some dedicated nursery volunteers and some old handymen that will be receiving far more rewards than they ever thought possible because their service was done to Christ. That's the point, isn't it? It's why we do this. That's why we're having these elder elections. It's why we gather here. It's because it's something bigger than our own fulfillment. We don't elect people to their offices so this way the men can feel personally fulfilled. 
We elect people to this office so that the kingdom of God may be expanded. That's our focus. It's not cultural relevance. The purpose of every aspect of our lives is to build the kingdom of God, to expand his rule on earth by fulfilling the great commission, by telling people what is written here in 1 Timothy 3, 16, that Christ was manifested in the flesh, that he died for our sins and rose from the grave. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, and proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world and taken up into glory, a glory that one day we will enter. That's the point. That's what we serve. We remember that not every man is qualified for this position either. Uh, There may be some that would be disappointed when they're not called to the task. But we remember that in all of this, We are serving our ultimate leader, our ultimate head, our master, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what do we do from here? What do we take away from this passage? One, we need to pray and fast that God would make it apparent who we are to select based on these qualities. All of us, whether eligible for office or not, are to conform conform our lives to these qualities. This is not the list for super-Christians. This is what is expected of one who has been transformed by the Spirit. And, one, and we should strive to have these qualifications, relying on Christ's Spirit to make it happen. Now we remember, no one is going to be perfect. We are going to find places in this list. In fact, if any man is honest, he is going to find a spot in this list where he's going, I don't quite measure up in that way. We're not calling for perfection because no one is, but we are calling for someone who is moving in that direction in their sanctification towards this process. That's what we're looking for. So that's our first thing. Remember these qualities fast and pray that you may be able to select them. The number two is that we need to pray for our leaders and to keep them accountable. We don't stop needing the gospel or sanctification when we become church leaders. Say that one more time. I and your elders and your deacons, as Paul Tripp likes to say, are smack dab in the middle of their own sanctification. And we need your prayers. I need your prayers to be faithful to my wife, to be free of love of money and wine, to be gentle and hospitable. And all these other qualities we see listed here, to raise my son well, I need those prayers from you. Our elders need those prayers from you because we are still men. We still need redemption. We still need deliverance. So please keep us in our prayers. Satan would love to take down a leader of a church. And in fact, when a man enters into that role, you'll be surprised that there is more to deal with than there was remembered. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. We need to start living like that's the case and go to God in prayer for our leaders who are on the battlefield. So that's two. So one, we need to fast and pray that God would show us who he wants to have as leader. Number two, 
I need to pray for those that we currently have and then pray for those that are newly elected. Third, as a matter of practicality, it's like, well, how do we go about doing this? Well, the first thing we want to do is we want to approach the person that you would wish to nominate for the office and see if he's willing to do that. And if after his prayer and careful consideration, he consents to be up for election, we'll have an opportunity for you to submit his name to be added to the the ballot to be voted on in a few weeks hence. So just that's as a practical matter. So we've seen we need to pray for our new leaders, pray for our current leaders, approach them. And then finally, this is the thing I want us to take away from this passage. We need to keep in constant remembrance that this is to be done for the sake of Christ and his bride, the church. This isn't politics or making someone feel good. This is a matter of eternity that, when done well, brings great honor to Christ our Savior. And that's the point. So I do beg you, urge you, consider carefully these requirements that have been listed. If you are confused about how this works or how Presbyterian polity works, I do invite you to come to our Presbyterianism 101. We'll be teaching a class after uh, after church, next week we'll be here in the fellowship hall and we'll, we'll be going over uh, the church officers and how all that works if you have further questions. But most of all, if you would pray that this is a really important thing that we're called to do. It's a wonderful privilege that we get to do this, to take part in shaping our leaders and shaping our church as a result of that. So let's shape in accordance to the gospel. Because this news that we have, that we are sinners, that Christ, who he wasn't required to, but he decided anyway to come down and live as one of us. But the difference was he never sinned and did anything wrong in thought, word, or deed. He lived the life that we were supposed to live and then died the penalty that we were supposed to die. He absorbed all the wrath of God for our sins onto himself and then took it into the grave, paid those wages of sin, which was death, and then rose again and is now ascended into heaven and is now the head and master of this church. So let us find men that know that message well. Let us find men that will lead us more in that direction so that he might be exalted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we've had together. I do pray that we would seek your face. I pray for those that you have already selected to be our leaders, that you would be preparing them for this office, that they would be sober-minded as they approach this task, that they might know you, and that they may serve you in this special way. Lord, for those who have not been called to an office in the church, you have still called them to the work of the church. And I pray for each and every person here for the gifts that you have given to them. I pray that they would know those gifts and use those gifts for the spreading of your kingdom. I pray for us as leaders that we would invest in your people, that we would help them to discover these gifts and to point them above all, not to ourselves, but to point them to you. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.